0: Hello listening audience, thank you again for downloading the podcast. This is Nugget Notes and I'm Jake Wiskirchen, your host. Today we have on a really wonderful lady named Lois Swisher. She is a medical doctor, an emergency medicine physician at that, and she's really active in the suicide prevention community. She's got an amazing story. It's a little uh, heart-wrenching and I think you're going to find it fascinating because the story itself has propelled her to make substantial changes in her own world and in, and within her professional community. Um, she does a great job talking about it and it's inspiring. So I think you're going to enjoy it. This podcast is brought to you as always by Zephyr Wellness, a company that I co-own with my co-owner Lindsay Bell in Reno and Sparks, Nevada. We serve all stripes of people. And we take all kinds of insurance, and even the insurances we don't take will not turn you away because you can see one of our talented graduate students who are working their way through their practicum hours to get out of school and get licensed as a full-fledged clinician, and uh, that makes everybody happy because they get to get training, we get to be their mentors, and the community gets excellent care. Check out ZephyrWellness.org for more information. You can download tons of media on there as well. Content like this podcast. um, Go to our YouTube channel, our Instagram channel, our Facebook channel. I don't know if there's channels or accounts or whatever, but but that's where you can get uh, new, cool, free information. We're also sponsored by Audible. And if you like feeding your noggin... As we try to do with Noggin Notes, you can feed it through Audible's unmatched selection of inventory, all sorts of audio content, including books and news and comedy and all sorts of entertainment. AudibleTrial.com slash Noggin Notes is where you can go for a free 30-day trial. You can get a free audiobook downloaded during that trial, and even if you decide to cancel, you keep the audiobook, and it helps us out too. AudibleTrial.com slash Noggin Notes. Go check them out. It's awesome. And without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Lois Swisher. Say that three times fast. Uh, She's from Pennsylvania, and this is Noggin Notes. Enjoy. Well, listening audience, this week on Noggin Notes, we have Lois Swisher joining us. And uh, I think one unique thing to point out about Lois is she she has her name spelled L-O-I-C-E. Hello, Lois. Good evening.
1: Good evening. It's great to
0: be here. Thanks for asking me on my podcast. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you. You're a, you're an emergency medicine physician. You live in Pennsylvania. And uh, we connected because of my involvement with Walk the Talk America. And you happen to have stumbled upon us somehow. Uh, I'm not sure what the story is. Maybe you could tell that at some point. But you have a particular interest in suicide prevention and uh, specifically suicide by firearm and how it affects the, the physician community and uh, so yeah, tell us tell us a little bit about yourself, including your your name spelling, and how you uh, came in came to be on this podcast.
1: Sure. Well, there's a lot there. Um, so I am a emergency medicine physician pr- practicing outside of Philadelphia, um, and. A few years ago, I became involved with a group called the Council of Residency Directors for Emergency Medicine. And this is a group that's interested in teaching emergency medicine.
2: Um,
1: And I became part of that group, not as a residency director, but as someone interested in resilience and wellness and supporting um, our residents and students towards good mental health. In that time, Um, I met several people, and um, I was the only person from my hospital that was involved in this organization. So I learned to make calls and connect with people, and I love doing that. So the way I got to you um, was I was on a phone call um, that uh, Mike Zivini was on, and he was talking about Walk the Talk America. I got on the website, and I'm like, huh that's really interesting. I think I'd like to talk to him. He is on the email chain that this all came through. I can get his email. Uh, so I wrote him an email and we started talking and he introduced me to you. And since then it's a, it's a great thing to uh, meet different people. So uh, <laughs> I
0: agree. I agree. It's It's been cool talking to you over the last several months too. And just for a, a little, uh, piece of transparency. You and I tried to do this many months ago. We tried to do it by phone back when I had a different computer that uh, was not working so well. And it turns out we got like 45 or 50 minutes into the podcast and darn if my computer wasn't recording the whole conversation. So, um, technology has not been our friend, you, yours and mine. Uh, <laughs> it's this one, this particular podcast is on take three anyway, which is <laughs> one of the good things about podcasts. Uh, you can just. Uh, stop and start and reset and all that stuff. It's different from live, live radio. So yeah, I'm really glad that we, we connected because, um, what we've discovered, I guess you, you and I, and and some of our clinical community is that what Mike is doing with walk the talk America, uh, needs, our input uh, largely we don't we don't have a lot of physicians and clinicians contributing to the conversation it was uh, it was largely just him and his work with the firearms industry to try to spread information and uh, not a lot of mental health uh, or physical health even support so i'm really i'm really stoked that you 're on board because you connected uh, us with Emmy Betts I believe or maybe vice versa i can't remember how that worked but now we're and we're starting to reach out and, and spread the message. So that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, tell us about your name. It's a family name, right? Makes you an easy Google search?
1: It does, it does. It. Uh, my grandmother was also uh, named Lois, and I, my mom named me that, and I am one of only two people, my grandmother and myself, that I know that has that name. So it does make me an easy Google search. Um, And I do sort of use that a little bit because I know I'm easy to find. Um, I do look to see in those things that I'm interested in, how I might have a digital footprint. And in this that we're talking about right now, I don't have a, a digital footprint. Not so much, maybe just a little bit.
0: Yeah, you do have your story, though. And I want you to tell about that because for you, it's very personal, this interest in suicide prevention and how we can normalize the conversation so that people seek help when they need it and not feel stigmatized and closeted within their own professions. So you have, you have this published, you've written about it, you've been interviewed about it a number of times. Um, explain to our audience what your, uh, what your story is, you know, as it pertains to your daughter and so on and so forth.
1: I'll definitely go there. But as I was thinking, listening to you and thinking, um, How we came together with Walk the Talk America uh, and myself was through a phone call dealing with suicide by firearms. Mm -hmm. And I am not a firearms owner. There is nothing about this that would make anybody think that I would be looking towards Walk the Talk America for any reason at all. But because I developed an interest in suicide prevention, I happened to be on a phone call um, where Mike Sodini was uh, the speaker, and he was talking about what the firearms community was doing. In Pennsylvania, um, they had decided that they wanted to start a gun shop project where we reach out to gun shops and talk about suicide prevention, Um, because most likely your best chance of preventing suicide with firearms, is with somebody who owns one. And so there was the suggestion that we go out and go to gun shops and see what the response is and take the flyers that we have with us and go. So I decided I would. I had never gone before, and I, I went alone. People later said, weren't you scared? I'm like, not really. I just didn't know what I was going to say. This was pre-COVID, so you could actually walk in the store and talk with multiple <laughs> people. And uh, this is last summer. And I went in, and the first time I started talking, I realized that firearms owners and emergency physicians were exactly the same. Um, both groups have this feeling that if you talk about suicide, something very personal and important to you can be taken away. For a physician, that's your license. You're credentialing at a hospital because when you go through all of your processes to renew your license, many states have a little checkbox that say, have you ever seen a psychiatrist or something about mental health? And every state's a little different. Even if you have a state that just says, do um, you have a... Um, disability that prevents you from working um, to your full capacity. Like if you're being seen because of marriage counseling or depression and habit under control, you don't have to take, up, take tell us. Um, it's only if there's something more than that that would uh, affect pa- patients or your job. Well, that's great if you're in one state, but what if five years down the line, you go to another state that says, have you ever seen a psychiatrist? or the hospital that you're trying to be credentialed at says that, you can't predict the rest of your future, so nobody wants to take the chance, even if you're in a place that um, seems to be more safe, more interested in mental health.
0: Yeah, and 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 if I can cut in right there, that, that's, that right there speaks to the stigma that's perpetuated about mental illness, is that it's somehow irrecoverable. like you can't, you can't ever heal from it. It's like once broken, always broken. And that's just not true. I mean, it's just, just simply not true. Um, If it were, and I've said this a million times in a million different places by now, I think if it were true, my profession would cease to exist because nobody could heal. You'd be permanently broken. And uh, we just know it's not true. So, and yet it still hangs out there as though it's a, it's some sort of impediment to occupation, which is really, really sad.
1: Yes, and it's it's with us, with physicians, with healthcare. So oh, the people that you think that you would be going to may harbor this feeling um, that it's dangerous for them. It may be okay for patients. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But but it, it's definitely not safe for me. And if you then haven't experienced it or know um the results of that type of interaction, then it's going to be less recommended. And so for me, it not only affects physicians, but it affects our entire population. So I felt like it was something really worth talking about And in getting to the firearms owners. It's like, yes, we're we're the same. We're the same as police. We're the same as pilots. Um, We're the same as veterans that when you start talking about mental health issues, that there's this fear and this stigma that somehow um, something will be taken away from you or you will no longer belong. Mm -hmm. And that belonging, it would be more painful not to belong than to be dead.
0: Yeah. And and I think now it's amazing because as many times I've had this conversation and given the explanation about how, proud I am that we've unlocked multiple different professional communities with this because it's, it's attorneys also, to some degree, it's anybody with a government security clearance, um, firefighters, uh, you know, so it's not just the professionals who have a license or a, a job where they may de- be deemed, you know, unfit for duty, quote, unquote. But now you talk about the belonging, we've got families who've generationally just disregarded their mental well-being, their emotional well-being, for that same reason. And if you go seek help, there's this this mentality among families, and certainly among different cultures, that uh, that you could be excommunicated from that family or that that cultural um, uh, nuance. And that speaks to the belonging, right? And that's that's one of, I mean, William Glasser's a famous guy in our field. You know, one of his five fundamental basic human needs is love and belonging. So imagine the risk associated with seeking help if you thought that you would lose your belonging, irrespective of any career impact. Wow. I had never considered that of all the things that I've discussed about it. So this is why I love the podcast, by the way. I learned stuff that I didn't even expect to learn. So thank you for that. Great point.
1: Yeah. So um, when you talk about my story, my story started a little over 20 years ago, uh, the major part, the one that's out there, and my then five-year-old daughter um, was having some unexplained vomiting, and being a physician, I realized that she could potentially have a brain tumor. She had this unexplained vomiting, occasionally would have a headache, and when I was a third-year medical student, um, one of my mentors Talk to me about a case that came into the emergency department. There was a child at St. Christopher's, preschooler, who had been bounced in and out of multiple visits, maybe five or six visits from the emergency department for vomiting. And on this visit, they found out that there was a large posterior fossa tumor. And because I was like the general population as a third-year medical student, I was horrified. How could a doctor ever miss... brain tumor because it's a brain tumor this is a big thing and he sat down and he said well you know some things particularly childhood cancer um it's really not clear what it is until the children are very far advanced and that terrified me because then how would you know and he said any child that comes in that has repetitive vomiting without fever you have to consider a brain tumor. Now, that doesn't mean you have to CAT scan all of them, but you have to do a detailed exam and consider it and think about it and give advice to the family. So when my daughter had this vomiting, this was playing in my head. And I did take her to um, the hospital. She had an MRI, and uh, there was a huge posterior fossa tumor. And I was devastated. I thought that I, I had been in... Um, trying to make my name in academic emergency medicine. I was young. I was doing a lot of hours. I wasn't at home. I must have been a terrible mom because if I was a better mom, I would have had to have seen the signs. Um, And then I thought, well, maybe I'm a terrible, terrible doctor. Like, how did I I miss this In, in my child? If I can't see it in my child that I see every day, How am I going to know what's wrong with a patient that I see for 15, 20 minutes? And can I live with that? That maybe some of the people that I'm sending out, I don't know what's wrong with them. Can I ever be a physician? And I'm a full income earner for my family. So if I'm not a physician, how are we going to survive? And I was just overwhelmed. My family was looking at me to be the one to help navigate the medical system. This was a a big deal thing, understanding chemotherapy and radiation and the surgery. And I found I knew nothing about pediatric brain tumors. I knew nothing about radiation. And so I then felt incompetent for my family. wasn't I might not be able to provide for them financially. I wasn't able to provide for them with the information that they wanted and the comfort of how to navigate the medical system. Because it is all different on the other side of the stethoscope. And as I went along, um, I became more entrenched with these thoughts. And I started thinking, if there was a merciful God, I would not wake up this morning. But I did. And I started saying that. And um, by this time, I had been off work two months while she was in the hospital the entire time. Um, Reason for that, I I missed this part of the story. When she came out of surgery, she came out completely neurologically devastated. She was blind, mute, paralyzed, incontinent, um, unable to do anything that a normal five-year-old could do except think and hear like a normal five-year-old. So she couldn't tell me what was scaring her. I didn't know if I was talking to her, whether she was reassured. I didn't know what she wanted. Um, And I was the one who consented to this surgery. And for me, I did this to her. I did not look for a second opinion. I did not even know where to go for a second opinion. I didn't look at any other choices besides surgery. And I felt that it was my fault and my responsibility that all of this happened because I was the one with the medical knowledge. You can't blame it on anybody else and clearly this wasn't a good outcome. Somebody has to take the fall for this. And um, that is when I started walking down that path and the longer she was in the hospital and the harder it was in getting better and being unsure how our life, our dream life that we thought we were going to have all changed. Her friends didn't come to the hospital, we didn't have play groups. Clearly, going to college was not in her future. Um, and it seemed to all fall apart, but nobody stopped me at uh, if there's a merciful God. And as I went along, I started saying, If there wasn't a hun- um, there's nothing going on today that 100 units of insulin wouldn't cure,
0: which is translation had- for. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which means that, that is a lot of insulin for somebody who is not diabetic. And the intent would be to kill yourself. Mm. You would, people sometimes use codes. They don't say exactly, I'm thinking of killing myself, but they send signals. A lot of times people will send signals. Um, and could it be some black humor and stuff like that? Well, if the circumstances are bad and somebody's saying this, even if the circumstances aren't bad and you don't know, you can always ask. The interesting thing was nobody asked. I could see the deer in the headlights, absolute horror at what the next thing you do. And this would be the, the greeting. You're like, hi, how you doing? Nothing going on today. The 100 units of insulin link cure. And we would do this day after, intermittently, day after day with different people, and it never went anywhere. Um, Because I think that they didn't know what to say. And the message I took away was, you don't want to go down this path. You really, really don't want to go down this path. Because if you go down this path, bad things will happen. Nobody said what it was, but I just could see it in their eyes that I will have to 302 you, involuntary commitment, or you won't be able to work, or they may take your child away from you. Like the numbers of bad things that could happen just became exponentially larger as people didn't respond to it. And I decided, well, they are telling me, if you say this, you bad things are going to happen and maybe you won't be a doctor and you won't be part of us anymore
0: it's really it's really easy to see how people who have um conflated self with identity I, i'm sorry self identity with um job could get into a very tough predicament where if they don't have the job you know yours was doctor um it wouldn't matter if you're alive right because uh, that is who you are and without that you're nothing so you might as well be dead if you're going to be nothing and what i'm hearing through your story is you lost multiple identities. You lost the identity of what you had dreamed for your future. You lost the identity of uh quote-unquote good mother. You lost the identity of quote-unquote good doctor. Um, all the things that you aspired to tackle are now you know, thrown into question. And uh, there's a sense of not only frustration and hopelessness, but also an incredible amount of guilt and shame that seems irreconcilable at that point. Um, so if you're listening to this and you're hearing Lois's story, obviously she's alive and well now, and she's, you know, resolved issues cause she's doing great things and advocacy and so forth. And that was 20 years ago. But if you're hearing this and you're hearing her story and you go, holy cow, that sounds like my, and then you fill that blank in with you know, brother, friend, next door neighbor, spouse, ex, you know, whoever it is that continually talks in those terms, um, that is, more likely than not an invitation to ask, hey, what is there I can do to help? Because that is pretty dark. I mean, if you're not used to the person being dark humored, um, which you know we could have a debate about whether or not that's appropriate in and of itself. Um, and this seems authentically dark rather than just humorously dark. Uh, it's, it's probably an invitation to talk. And what I'm hearing is that these people just didn't want to talk. They They themselves didn't know what to do. They didn't have resources. It wasn't a common conversation to have among your your peer group.
1: Yeah. These are people that I know loved and cared about me. I've worked with for a long time. And I really think that they didn't want to make things worse for me Mm. and didn't know what to say where they could be assured that the consequences wouldn't be horrible. And so since nothing bad happened the day before or the week before, it's like, okay, well, I guess it's okay. And I guess that's the way she is. And it's a really hard time. And that's the way she talks. And we're still doing okay. Um, and I think people, we don't teach each other how to deal with these conversations. When you were talking about the multiple losses, um, I wrote, wrote a story. Um, but it was about the loss of my dream child. And when you have a child and you see them as a baby, you think they could be anything. They could be president or they could be a ballerina or they could cure cancer, like a thousand different things. The potential is just overwhelming. And as you go along, you might realize, well, they're never gonna be a singer when you hear them sing happy birthday. Um, or, yeah, that just really didn't go well when they threw the football. But other times you'll say, gee, they're an amazing reader or an incredible thing. And you get this chance to learn the strengths and how to support the weaknesses of your child. And in one day, I went from all those potentials to the loss of my dream child, and the platitudes, well, she's still with us. No, my dream child was not still with me. My daughter was still there, but I grieved the loss of, my husband and I both went to college locally here in Pennsylvania, and we would have this teasing battle back and forth, which college she would choose. After she, after she had her brain tumor and her surgery, we never talked about that again. That died when she went into surgery. Wow. And so people want you to feel better. They want to give you the positive things. And it's hard to talk and stay present to the darkness. So for me, um, I just walked right down that suicide pathway, completely unimpeded. And Although it was sort of stressful and scary, on the other side, it was great. I loved it. My life was out of control. And so for this period of my day, when I thought about it, I was in control. I might not be in control of a lot of things, but I can at least be in control of whether I'm going to live or die today. Mm. I have that one thing left. And then as I started, I'm like, I have... Choices that I'm in control of. I can choose the time and I can choose the location, and I can make decisions of this is not going to happen in the hospital because they have the fifty glucose sugar that will bring you back. So I have to figure out a place where I'm not going to be found, and then I can start thinking of different places and how far I want to go. Like there are lots of things that you can have choices about. and having more choices made me feel in control of my life when I wasn't before. So um, I now have been, I, when I've talked about this to other people, somebody told me that I needed a 12-step program. I'm like, never thought of it before. But I absolutely needed a 12-step program. This was thinking about suicide was like my drug. It made me feel better and it made me feel more in control. And I think maybe in some ways, if you weren't comfortable talking about it and trying to alter the course, I'm not sure how much I wanted to talk about that aspect. I think people would think that that's weird. That's crazy. What? (laughs) You are crazy. Not that those thoughts are crazy. You actually, you yourself are out of your mind.
0: What what looking back now, what would you have said um if somebody actually confronted you and said, Man, you've been talking about this a lot. Um, that sounds like it might be a problem. Like did you were you aware that it was a problem?
1: Oh yeah. I was aware you, you that you were that it was fully a problem. aware. Okay. Oh yeah. I mean I, I was aware it was a problem. But I also was unable to stop it.
0: Interesting. So these days, you know, we, what we teach in, you know, suicide prevention is, you know, a lot of validation. Um, But I'm wondering if, if that would have even worked, you know, if somebody goes, man, yeah, you, you are really going through it right now. Like would that have even worked if somebody had just simply had, had some validating things to say, not the platitudes. Cause the platitudes fall short. Those are, those are intellectual. They're cerebral. They hit the frontal lobe. And if you're full of emotion, it's just simply not going to hit the right part of the brain. But if they validated your sadness, if they validated your guilt, you think that would have worked or would you have brushed it off?
1: No, I, I do think that it w- would have worked because I do think that what people want at their darkest times is two things they want to really be heard and they don't want to be alone Mm -hmm. and if you can assure somebody that i will sit with you i can listen to this and you really listen to all of it um and say well that's not true or at least you have this if you can just let them tell their story letting those thoughts those dark thoughts have the light of day I think has incredible power, but it's hard. It's hard to sit there when somebody is crying and in pain and just let them go for as long as they have to, um, to be that catharsis. Yes, I do think it would, would help. Um, I also think that, um, there is a, a part of this professional identity, um, that has a framework and it works for not only my situation, but others. Would you like me to talk about that for
0: a little bit? Yeah, I do, um, because I think it has application to other professions, um, but I want to go back to the darkness and maybe explain something to the to the audience if you're curious. Um, there's a lot said about the shadow aspect of, of humanity and how we deny part of ourselves that we don't want to acknowledge. Carl Jung talks a, a great deal about this. Um, and the idea is that as, as human beings, we have infinite potential uh, psychologically. We have limitless capacity to, to grow and to develop and learn new things and advance. Um, but we also have to acknowledge that we have the capacity for both great and terrible. And so when we can confront that which we have carved out or denied or suppressed in ourselves... As we see it in other people, say, for example, the concept of suicidality altogether, if if I'm raised in a family that's very invalidating and taught that, you know, you just don't talk about those things. And then one of my colleagues comes forward with one of those things, not knowing how to handle it becomes an exercise in avoidance, uh, not of the other person's struggles but of our own discomfort, and we see this a lot in, in the counseling world in groups where in group settings you got a handful of people all circled around, you're doing a, you know some processing, and somebody bursts into tears over whatever the topic is. Almost invariably, the first thing that happens is the other group members will reach out with some sort of offering to bail them out of that emotional state. you know it's a, it's a box of Kleenex or it's, a, it's an offer of a solution. Uh, or it 's you know have you called an attorney yet, or did you file a police report it's and that and all those things are are designed to pull the person from their discomfort or their distress, not because we want to see them o- overcome it, but because we ourselves are uncomfortable watching it and I think it 's important to notice that if if you feel that in yourself because somebody comes to you with a with a really difficult situation, whether it 's an impending divorce or it 's suicidal ideation or Uh, a child who's self harming, or, you know, any one of those things that can maybe come up over a lunchtime conversation, or, you know, cocktails at the bar. And this person's just like, just struggling. The important thing is to stay out of the way. And be okay, sitting in their discomfort. Because to do anything else is quite invalidating. And it shuts down the dialogue. And what you what you risk is sending the message like all your colleagues sent to you, which was, uh, don't come to me with that. And then you turn around and after a while, you don't, you don't have anywhere to go with it. Um, So if you're listening and you're wondering like, oh yeah, I've had that conversation with my, with my friend or my neighbor or whatever, my cousin. um, The best thing you do is just be present. Just, just listen, just listen. Um, Because often if they're coming to you, it means they trust you and that you're a safe space. And, uh, and if you take that away from them, chances are really good. They're not going to be able to get through it. So I just want to throw that out there, but yeah, talk about the professional identity stuff and, and, um, because I think that's, that's generally applicable.
1: Yeah. I think, um, particularly for physicians, one of the things that, um, leads to problems and suicidality is, uh, a problem in the workplace, malpractice, uh. a bad outcome, um, Something that you think that you did wrong. And it's not just like you made a bad decision. It's magnified to, I must be a bad doctor. Would anybody else have done this? I didn't do something fast enough or right enough. And looking back, um, I've heard the retrospectoscope is painful. It <laughs> becomes very clear what you should have done if you look back. But if you look from the front end, because you don't have a crystal ball of what's happening, those decisions can be completely reasonable for the the times. And so um, there is this um, coined phrase called second victim syndrome um, that I think is really applicable in a lot lot of ways. And it was applicable in mine that uh, the first victim is the patient and the family. They, they, suffer the illness, the event. Sometimes it may be a medical mistake um, or it could just be a bad outcome. I'm going to tell you, if you were in Las Vegas when that shooting happened, it was a bad day being an emergency physician and seeing that happen and seeing the numbers of people. If you had a, a, a school bus that was in an accident and there was multiple children that's a bad day um and we have these things that um the patient is is injured we didn't have anything to do with making that but we take on the injury ourselves we we have a humanness in us that are is hurt by that so there's a wide wide spectrum of how that can happen a second victim how a second victim syndrome can happen and when there's six stages and i may not remember all of them but the first three happen um, immediately and they can happen together you have these bad feelings you have intrusive thoughts you start replaying the event and you get in this cycle um, and that can be a malpractice case that can be that like mine, my child was diagnosed with a brain tumor and I thought I I missed it. It could be that you're in a sporting event and um, somebody looks like they're having a seizure and it's actually a cardiac event and couldn't have made a difference if you went for um, the automatic defibrillator a couple minutes early because you didn't realize that this wasn't a regular seizure. These are things that I've heard from people and they repeal those events. And what we don't realize is that the healing comes in the next part. It's called enduring the inquisition. And as you're talking about the questions and did you file a police report? And Did you do this and did you do that? This natural wanting to question about how to help oftentimes makes it worse because those rapid fire questions are the inquisition. Uh, And if you realize that the vast majority of people out there are still in the Inquisition. They're going to ask you questions. Then it's not quite as bad to, to get through that. That, that is the where, that's where I had a problem. That's where a lot of people have a problem. It's the judgment and the shame and the terror that comes with those questions. So I said, um, I don't like liminal space. You ask the question, and you're waiting for the response. And I can feel a lot of awful things on what the response is going to be in, in that gap.
0: I'm, I, I took the time there to look up second victim syndrome because I'd never heard of that before. It looks like a, an Albert Wu uh, came up with this uh, circa 2000. And it sounds a lot like what I've referred to as vicarious trauma as well. Um, and I think the stages i 'm going to have to read more about this but it looks like the stages could pretty much overlap my understanding of what vicarious trauma is and, and for those listening who don't understand the the lingo maybe um, prior to nine eleven we um, we as a clinical community didn 't really believe that vicarious trauma could happen we We had the understanding that it, if you had experienced trauma, the events directly affected you uh, they directly impacted you we didn 't think you could have any sort of uh, traumatic response based on just simply witnessing things. And then uh, we realized as a country, we all suffered some sort of uh, traumatic stress disorder. And I want to be careful with my my uh, language here and not label it as post-traumatic stress or acute stress disorder. But the idea is that watching the images of those planes fly into the buildings over and over and over and over again had an absolute uh, deleterious effect on our own mental well-being across the country. And then we kind of woke up and went, ooh, maybe this is a thing. And it sounds like second victim syndrome might fall into that, except, um, as instead of being bystanders, you're, you're actually responsible for treating the, the wounded and then f- taking on that pain yourself. Is that, does that sound like your understanding of it?
1: I think it's, um, I think it's probably overlaps a lot. I think it's reframing the words for our community and, um, it is one that is in healthcare uh, that, that it rings true to me. In that, um, I think vicarious trauma may ring true to other communities, but it's probably the same.
0: Right, right. Either way, it's worth exploring. It's worth acknowledging because if you're suffering so long that it's become you know significantly impactful in your life, then you you need to seek help anyway. And, you know who cares the origin of it. Um, get it get healed you know i think that, i think that's the important thing but now that we have these terms to acknowledge it at least it gives us some ability to wrap our arms around as opposed to before where it's like well, what are, you weren't in new york city you weren't in in washington dc when the planes went down you were in reno nevada what do you mean you're stressed um but it's and now and now of course we extrapolate that to social media and how much we intake on a regular basis of just negativity and toxicity um You used to have to seek that stuff out. Now it just gets delivered to your inbox um, based on algorithm, based on what you clicked on. (laughs) Yeah. So Um, go ahead. Yeah.
1: So I've thought about this professional identity. I mean, doctors really have that professional identity. Being a doctor and being who you are, a lot of times it is is the same. And it is why malpractice suits for lawyers can be just business, but for physicians, it actually is a judgment on how they are as as a person, as a doctor, and it can be very overwhelming. And so um, over the years, I've come up with this concept. I think it's mine. It may not be. Um, but it talks about uh, professional, I talk about professional identity crisis. And what I went through very rapidly, when my daughter had her brain tumor and then was disabled, I had a professional identity crisis. And it encompasses uh, three areas. And one was my internal sense of self, which I talked about, like, I didn't know about radiation, I didn't know so many things. And I was an imposter uh, as a doctor. Um, And a lot of us have imposter syndrome. And then there was this second victim syndrome in looking how everybody else um, in in my little group, my little tribe, was going to look at me and judge me. And then um, moral injury. I think a lot of times that moral injury component gets into a professional identity crisis and that's true whether what happened to me or what happened to uh i have a friend gita pensa who has a podcast called the l word and she was the i can say this because she has a podcast and she talks about all this Um, she was the sole defender in a multi-million dollar lawsuit that went on 12 years and she Won uh, the initial trial, and then there was an appeal, and she had to do it all over again for 12 years, and how that affected her pre- uh, professional identity. Um, and I had another person come to me just a few months ago at a, a conference, and I thought she wanted to talk about second victim syndrome, and after we had the lecture went on the hall, I looked at her eyes, and went like, just asked her what happened and their eyes started to have tears and I oh this is all different we sat down for two hours as she talked about a case of a woman who um miscarried and uh, this is also out there I can talk about this she, we, she and I did a podcast and how she had had a miscarriage and how when um the consultant came down and uh, Looked, and the fetus was before being um, viable to live but big enough to take breaths that uh, the consultant said non viable and left the room. And then she was there with this mother and this tiny fetus that was gasping for breath oh, that didn't have long to have it for more than an hour. And she had had a miscarriage and she just wow. The imposter syndrome of maybe I should have done something with this uh, consultant and feeling for the patient and that maybe she wasn't the best advocate and that this happened to begin with, she just disintegrated and now I see this that it happens that there's people that strongly have a professional identity when those three things come together it's it's a storm and it happens all the time. I now see it it happens all the time. And the answer to this for recovery seems every single time to realize that this happens and talk about it. It is that enduring the inquisition, being able to talk about it and get all those questions out that um, you're afraid of the answer. Talk about
0: moral injury, if you would. That's a, that's a newer phrase that um, popped on my radar just a couple of weeks ago. Somebody sent me an article about something and then in the article had a link, uh, a hyperlink to the moral injury. And I was like, what is that? And it's it was only about 18 months old. As I understand it, moral injury, injury is when you work in a profession, you have your personal ethics and morals, you have your professional ethics and morals, and then the job is asking you to violate those based on, um, you know, some gray area that in my, in my estimation, it typically happens in corporates, corporate healthcare settings where, you know, maybe you just need to discharge the person a little sooner than you you want to because of some liability reason, but it's not ethically the right thing to do. Or maybe you hang on to them in care a little bit longer than you want to, because, you know, we gotta, we gotta pad the bottom line. Is is that your understanding that word, that phraseology, or do, do you have a different interpretation or definition of moral injury?
1: No, th- th- that works. That works for me, and I think it's come up um, a lot over the last few years regarding um, burnout being more moral injury. Correct. Correct. Um, some of that is is with the um, length of stay and billing process. That so um, for me, one of the things that's looked at is the length of stay a patient has in the emergency department, and somehow that got equated to quality of care it's something that that can be benchmarked with the computer on how long the person was there which is an easy way but i can promise you i can walk in with discharge papers and say you don't need to be here that's just a cold without even seeing them and and tell them to, to leave and they're only there 10 minutes whereas if i spend a lot longer with the person whether it's a cold or they end up having leukemia, um, my care being longer somehow is equated with poorer care.
0: Really, longer equals poorer in the in the corporate pantheon of legal speak, or or
1: like in you should judging, be doing a judging one, one, one person against another, and judging one institution against another. If you go out on, um, look at the metrics of hospital to hospital, length of stay is one of the things that is posted out there. So over time that has come to be having faster care, being able to get in and out must be better. Whether that's true or not, that is the way it's interpreted in all those websites out there. And so if me as an ER physician wants to spend a little time and thinks, you know, this story just doesn't seem right, I wanna do a CAT scan, but it's going to add another 90 minutes to my length of stay on this person. Well, they could go to their primary care doc and their primary care doc could order it. It is COVID and all the things that are closed and it's gonna be a lot longer, but it's really not needed now. So should I go with a lower length of stay Or because I have a concern, should I increase my length of stay and maybe help the patient out?
0: That sounds like it's driven by insurance not wanting to pay out.
1: There's a million things. COVID right now has a lot of different things. So uh, there is not enough PPE in the world to handle the number of masks that we would have needed to do things now in COVID as I would have done a year ago. I do not think in 2019 I ever used the N95 mask. Mm-hmm. But if I did, every interaction, every inter- in and out of that room, I would have used a different mask if I had somebody coming with active TB. So I used zero last year. If I did this now in that setting, I would use dozens in a shift. We don't have enough to do that
2: right.
1: now because there's not enough people are being asked to use the same mask for five days or one day or 30 days. Um, we haven't figured this out, but there is not enough PPE in the world to do this. And if we use it the way we have to now, we are putting ourselves and our families at risk.
0: There's your moral injury.
1: If you have a patient come in and is in cardiac arrest and they don't have a heart rhythm, do you call that then? Do you intubate the person? Because if you intubate a person um, and their likelihood is that the, their high likelihood is that they're not going to make it coming in an asystole, no heartbeat, um, are you, and then they find out that they were COVID? You've just put yourself and potentially everybody else in the room. If you were bagging the patient, especially before uh, viral filters, and aerosolizing COVID all over the room, maybe you were okay, but your 70-year-old nurse who's been doing this a long time, um, what if she gets it? What if she ends up in your hospital and she dies? Was it your patient that you chose to intubate that probably wasn't going to make it
0: any way Right. And we don't know because we don't know enough about COVID to know yet. Right. So that's another example. Yeah. that's It's becoming clearer. I appreciate that. I, th- I think I had only conceptualized it in the form of like company pressures to, to do certain things, but, but it's also any, re- it's really any ethical conflict that um, I guess juxta is juxtaposed against long standing orthodoxy. Um, so you get told something, this is the way we do things, and then uh, rules change, but you don't necessarily know why or how. Uh, and then you're forced to, to choose, and both of them seem like an equally poor option. Uh, in, in my world, we call that a double bind. Um, you go through a series of double binds throughout childhood, maybe in a chaotic household where parents are inconsistent, something like that, or they're just highly invalidating. Uh, you end up with with mental illness and children, uh, largely. Now we're doing it to our professionals. We're putting them in perpetual double binds, or at least repeated double binds, uh, where neither outcome is, is good, and they're suffering. And they're suffering in a way that, apparently, from what I'm hearing now, they're not allowed to talk about, because if they talk about it, it puts their license at risk, because they're deemed to be crazy and unfit to work, which is, how do you get out of that?
1: You're right. Exactly. That that is, the uh, sort of stew that we're in. So, I reached in the early parts of 2000, a time where I was at the sink at my hospital, with the insulin and with a uh, needle that I was going to. I wasn't going to take the bottle because then it would be missing. I wanted to take a syringe of this with me. And I had not gotten to the decision of actually putting the needle through the plunger and withdrawing the fluid. I had done many steps before that. I was at the point, like, if I'm at this point, then we're not going to do any more decisions. This is, this is torture. This is the one. Um, and I mean, was trying to make the decision, is it this one or not? And if it's not, then then it's then it's not. We're 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 done with with playing this game. Um, And so as I stood there and thought about it, I decided that no, my daughter had been getting better—not a lot, lot better—but it was seemed pretty clear that at that time uh, she was going to make it uh, through. Um, Her vision had had come come back. It was cortical blindness. So a lot of it was the swelling of the brain resolving. Uh, Cortical blindness is that your eyes see, but your brain doesn't know it. And so the eyes are fine. There was nothing wrong with her eyes. She just needed to recover that part of her brain that was swollen. And um, she had started to talk again. It wasn't quite right, but she could communicate. She was able uh, to ride a tricycle. And so it was getting better. It wasn't what it was as a normal five-year-old, but it certainly wasn't worse than a newborn where she couldn't even cry. So I decided that it would be never. Uh, But then then how do you reconcile all this pain? And what I decided, apparently I'm not unique at this, Buckminster Fuller had a child who died at the age of, I think, four, had a similar process. Was, well, I'm just going to consider myself dead, that there will be no, no dreams, no passions, no hopes, no desires. You get up, you try to do good for the world, you take care of your family, and you try to shove all, everything, every emotion down. Um, it actually works really well in emergency medicine, so uh, I wouldn't know if I was hungry. I wouldn't know. What I wanted to eat. I wouldn't necessarily know if I had to go to the bathroom. I tried to, every emotion, every biological need, as much as I could, I tried to shut down. And um, it's not great. It
2: worked. (laughs) It
1: kept you alive. You know, it it kept. I had I had things to do. I had lots of rehab, speech, and PT and OT to do with her, and I had to figure out schooling, Uh, and I had to work and do um, CMEs. I had a lot of stuff to do, and if you took out all the emotional part, it was easier. You had enough energy to do the doing part. And I stayed that way for 16 years. And then what? And then.
0: 16 years is a long time, by the way, to to stuff down emotion, and be a robot. Uh, uh,
1: apparently, because it, it doesn't go away.
0: That's true. That's true. <laughs> the
1: next two years, I spent lots of time in tears. <laughs> it all came out. So what happened? was I had told you I belonged to this group called Council of Residency Directors. And on January 11th, one of uh, the people wrote an uh, email to our listserv, over 2,000 people. And uh, by that time, I had been on listservs for pediatric brain tumors, and I understood how difficult it was for people to write about uh, their children and these difficult things with their marriage and their family. It usually takes a long time. And he wrote this open letter, this program director, that one of his residents had killed himself over a sick family member. And how he didn't see it coming. And he felt guilty that it happened on his watch. And that we had to shine a light on this and speak its name and create a legacy. And as I read this letter, my first thought was, Your program director, I would never, ever, ever talk to you. In fact, I would use every ounce of energy that I had to pass for you because you just had too much control over my life. And no matter how much you wanted to help me and offered um, resources, it just seems so scary. The culture of saying, yeah, I'm in need, I am the weak link today, just doesn't happen. And we don't have role models of how to do it. You don't be the one that is not to be counted on. So I was like, geez, uh, Chris Doty is, is maybe his story's out there too. I, I, I couldn't fathom why he would think that he was guilty of this in some way. And not only that, it had nothing to do with the job, it was your, a family member. Clearly, my job 16 years before could not handle it either. And that was random people working with me in the emergency department, not somebody that had uh, all the power over whether I would have a job or not. So then he, he called that we needed to do something about this. When I got to the end of the letter, I realized that we don't speak about it. And this really, well-known program director in emergency medicine, this really good man had gotten hurt because we don't talk. We don't make it safe to talk and we don't make it safe for me, somebody like me, to say the story. And the only way that this can get better is if somebody who has gone through the experience and gotten to the other side say, this is what happened to me, here is my story, And it turned out okay. Not everybody that hits that point of suicidal crisis ends up dying. There is a a theoretical number of perhaps 400 physicians a year kill themselves. We actually really don't know how many that is. But we certainly don't know how many physicians think about it and don't do it and how they survive that.
0: Why don't we know the number of physician suicides?
1: because they don't keep records in that way and a lot of people don't trust the records that somebody might have put in the death certificate a cause that was not suicide and there's good reasons why people do that that There was the fear of if suicide is listed as a potential cause, how that will um, reflect on a family or whether they will get death benefits and whether the spouse and the children would survive. And putting that on the death certificate, what good does that do anybody anyway if it hurts families that are still here? So I understand why that is. And then just when you go look at death certificates of cause of death we're terrible at it most there is a significant percentage of death certificates when they do the autopsy the initial listed cause of death was not it so it isn't a good um marker and if you find somebody dead from an overdose was that from fentanyl Right. right was that intentional or was it accidental? The only way we would know is if there's a note.
0: Yeah. Single car rollovers.
1: Yeah. So we don't know um, because the way the statistics are kept, a lot of times every state is individual. There is a traumatic death registry, but it does not include every state. The way the death certificates are listed. um, We just really don't know. Are
0: you familiar with blue help? It's a, it's an organs yeah for police yeah it's it's tracks the police suicides but it's all volunteer um not as much as as i should
1: can you tell me a little bit
0: about it yeah they they what they do is they solicit um stories testimonials from the the surviving family members so that's how they get their data they they acknowledge that it's imprecise also and or i should say incomplete um but you can you can contact Blue Help if you, if you have a family member who's a police officer who died by suicide and register that death with that organization so that they have an accurate count. Um, I'm wondering if maybe the the emergency medicine or just the physician community in general uh, needs something like that. Maybe that maybe that traumatic death registry can you know do more to encourage volunteer submissions.
2: So-
1: this is an interesting point of contention and people who are in, in this community. Um, actually knowing the number does nothing for me. I, I don't care if it, if it's one or a hundred. Um, people do. And I think data is important. That's just not where my heart is. Where my heart is is um, in the prevention side. Yep. And I, I think that we, in the stories that we've been talking back and forth here, um, we know that being a physician somewhere along the line is going to be a rough road because you're a physician. It could be malpractice. It could be addictions. It could be a sick family member. It could be an error. It could be... Financial crisis. I mean, right now, COVID has shut down a lot of offices. People are furloughed. Yeah, when I started, I thought that with COVID, it's like, well, at least it's job security. It's not right. because people aren't coming to the emergency department, and emergency physicians are being laid laid off. Um, their hours yep. are being cut, and that financial drain is a huge stress. Um, and I think that. If we started earlier, like in medical school, college, high school, saying life is hard and things are going to happen to you, maybe not all of you, but a great percentage, something is going to happen. And you need to be prepared on how you're going to handle that crisis psychologically and emotionally.
0: And we're doing the opposite.
1: We're doing the opposite. But if we say, it's going to happen it without a doubt as an emergency physician bad things are going to happen to you that are going to stress you out um whether that's uh the boston bombing was was one or whether that is a needle stick with a high risk individual who has hiv things are going to happen to you that um affect your mental health your ability to sleep your ability uh, to interact with other people and if you have a plan of how to deal with that you are going to be so much better off than I was without a plan because I just walked right down that suicide journey which was scary but it was also comforting because I had decisions
0: are they really not doing that these days I mean you're on a, you're on a council that you know governs resident directors or at least you know it's an association like are they really not doing that in in medical school i know they're not doing it in the lower grades k k through 12 it means like i said it's the exact opposite we're teaching kids that they're they shouldn't be facing trials and tribulations like we're trying to protect everybody and keep them like psychologically safe rather than um teaching them how to endure and and push through but i can't i can't believe that's not happening in med school really
1: Really? So wow. from, from K to graduate school, depending where you are, there may or may not be programs involved. What happened in um, medical education really had a tipping point in 2014. That was when everything changed. And in 2014, um, that summer, two interns jumped from buildings in New York City and killed themselves. It was about a week apart. And uh, 20 years ago, it was easy to keep things quiet because the internet didn't exist. Right. People put the the news, there might be gossip, but having things out in the paper and out on TV was very limited. Now having you know blogs and YouTubes, it's very easy uh, to circumvent the Traditional forms of communication. And uh, when those two interns died, there was a significant outcry about this and ideas of is this a moral injury? Is this overwork? Is this a toxic medical education? Is this that there's a lot of depression and anxiety? We're not attending to the mental health of medical students and residents. Could be all of that, but we didn't know because we didn't ask the question of what was happening. The ACGME, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, the oversight body, um, put some effort, significant effort, that this should not happen. We have to address wellness. In for the residencies, there's now... Um, wellness requirements. In that, there are three specific for mental health. Uh, One is having 24-7-365 access to physical and mental health uh, emergency uh, help. There's no recommendations of how that should look or what is required, but at least there's a minimum standard that there should be something. There is a line that says that co-residents and faculty should be able to have a pathway to talk to program leadership if they're concerned about somebody. They make the recommendation. They don't say how you should implement that. And you really can't because every institution is going to be a little bit different of how that is. We don't have role modeling of that. I think it went into effect in uh, 2017, in places are still trying to figure out is this hotlines? is this having a psychiatrist, a psychiatrist or a psychologist on staff, should it be at your hospital or should you have an exchange program with another institution like here in Philadelphia that you wouldn't be required to go to your institution but there's other medical stu- schools mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you could, could exchange that way. Um, they're at least talking about it.
0: And that's your goal. You know, when I asked that question and you gave the big sigh and the pause when I said, what do you do about it? This is the answer. This is doing something. You start talking. We don't have an immediate solution, but we can't have a solution without discussion first to see where everybody is. And, and you know, I asked the question about the, the number too, you know, how do, how do we get more accurate numbers? And I think, you know, a, apart from just dangling a number in front of, say, a legislative body to, to generate funding for the prevention cause... It gives you a, at least a, I guess a, a a benchmark to know whether or not it's a it's a problem unique from greater society, right? So if you find that the the rate is quadruple what the rate is for normal society, then you know then you you know you have a very large problem, um, and I think that's why why the importance of of numbers, but to your point about who, like, who cares what the numbers are? We just know that it's happening and we, we, we have a suspicion as to why um, conversations like this one right here on this podcast is, are really important. So more podcasts, um, <laughs> everyone should have a podcast, but also the education component that you're talking about that the CM, the ongoing CMEs to, to mandate that you have to attend to this stuff is, is really critical. And then the flip side is my people who would be the treating professionals need to understand your culture, which is something Walk the Talk America is doing with the the firearms industry and the firearms cultures. We need to demystify the counseling process, excuse me, and take away some of the the misinformation so that people can go seek help. And it doesn't necessarily need to be professional level, you know, one-on-one talk psychotherapy. It can, like you said, it can be a a peer support line or a, a warm line or a hot line or a cold line or however people are referring to those things these days. Um, somebody on staff, somebody at somebody else's staff, but at least have them available. But then it's not enough just to have them available. You got to make them competent in what they're going to handle. Because I can say with a high degree of confidence that coming out of school, we were taught about many quote unquote sensitive subjects. And they were, you know, finances, sexual uh, activity, sexual orientation. Um, uh, disease and, you know, and, and, um, an illness, um, you know, suicide ideation is another sensitive subject that, that common citizens don't discuss in the grocery store at the family barbecue. And we as professionals need to be comfortable in in handling those topics. Well, two of them certainly are not, well, three, I can throw in the military there are not military competence about culture in the military, firearms ownership competence, physician competence. And then I can just throw in the one that you mentioned too: pilots. I, I see that on psychology today as somebody's specialty area that they can check the box for, you know, competent in aviation. What, what does that even mean? Well, not now, as I've gotten into this, I get it. It's There's a uniqueness to the profession, unique, almost like um, there's a uniqueness to being uh, gay, lesbian, transgender, and having to come out of the closet and go through that whole uh, process. You got to understand the culture. You can't just take a swing at it uh, because if you miss, you push somebody away, possibly forever, from care that they absolutely need. So we we need, we, my clinical community needs competence training. I, I mean, I would love to sit through a class where you just describe what you described about the, the culture of your environment on a daily basis and the pressures that you face, but in greater detail and depth, and then have some vignettes that we work through uh, so that we can handle it with some level of fluency uh, and not be... Be treating you just as a run of the mill person who doesn't have added additional pressures due to your occupation. Um, that's the solution for now, I guess, in my opinion. And you're and you're doing it. You're having the conversation. You got a bunch of organizations working on it.
1: I do want to go back to that because there are things that we can do right this minute. Absolutely, right this minute. One of them is most residents, um, medical students, work a lot of physicians work in hospital, uh, hospital settings and there's employee assistance programs, EAP. Mm-hmm. They're there, they're available. Um, but there's not a transparency of process or consequence. So then when you get to the time that you actually feel like maybe you should do that, because you don't know what the consequences are and whether it's really confidential. And if you ask somebody, how does it work? And you're becoming a red flag.
0: Yeah, you instantly Pull put yourself on, on the radar. Yeah.
1: So I saw that instead, in law enforcement. Instead of waiting until, a, say, in orientation, hey, we have the CAP, and if you ever need it, here's the phone number, say, we would like all of you to consider having one visit right now. We encourage it. We know that transitions are hard. We know that the vast majority of residents who kill themselves are in the first three months of internship. Really? Transition, yeah. Transitions and it, it makes sense. Transitions are hard. You don't know where you are. You have an increased level of responsibility for patient care for life and death where you didn't have that before. And you have a oftentimes have means to kill yourself. You have prescription power. You can get lethal things with that. We set up a situation without the support. And if we tell people that that's a risk, one of the things that you hear is like, well, we don't want to scare them. We don't want them to you know, be a downer as, as we're starting, but.
0: Like they're already scared, <laughs> they're already down.
1: They're a little terrified. So what we do, not only do we put them in a new situation, they rotate every like three to four weeks to another group of people. So in emergency medicine, you might be in pediatric ER. And then you may go to the ICU. And then you may do OB. And it's a whole different group of people that don't know you Especially the first year, that you have to start all over again trying to figure out who to trust, who you don't trust, what your knowledge is on a new subject. You just got feeling okay in the ICU, and now they send you to to OB, to the little over babies. And you get to start all over again, not knowing anything and not knowing anybody again and again and again and again the whole first year. Personally, I think it's amazing we don't have more people being stressed out with that the reason why is it's a limited time frame you're it's an intense thing and people and other residents would like yeah I was like that last year yeah I was like that last year and we have another spike going out of um, residency where you don't have that camaraderie
0: in the fel- Is that into fellowship or into whatever permanent placement they would fund?
1: Permanent placement, you're the only new guy in a, in, oh, yeah. in a practice. Um, whereas in internship, all of you are new guys. You may not have like your class of 12, you're all new. You have somebody right there. But if you go into a new practice, you are the new guy.
0: It's isolation in a different form. It's not the traditional mm-hmm. form of isolation where you're literally alone it's a psychological isolation of sorts where you don't know like you said who to trust or you don't have a rapport established and really very little time to establish it anyway um it, it's like we we need to pull these people off of islands somehow and create a create a network of support so they can get through it, you know if you listening to this and maybe you've had a similar experience because i can only analogize it to some of the false start careers i've had um but there's usually a probationary period following a training period and you can, if you don't like it, you can quit. Well, in medical school, now, you know, you accru- accumulate two to three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars of student loan debt. You can't just quit because nothing else pays you that well that wouldn't require you to start over fresh and accumulate even more debt in the training period. So I, I get it. I get the the unique pressures to to this particular occupation. That's overwhelming.
1: And if we started this, like EAP, people that do work like you do and understand these pressures and the issues with transition and isolation then can provide a framework early on, On this is what EAP is, this is what we offer. These are some of the challenges that you might face, and if you do, we're here to help because we have seen this before. So then when the crisis happens, um, you give the wrong medicine to a patient. And then you're like, oh, I remember. I remember how to do this. And it was okay. And they gave me good advice. Then you've created a pathway where there is transparency of the process and consequences. One of the things that I think is a great tool available right now, safety planning. Brown and Stanley safety planning, because I'm emergency medicine and words, you can use different words to mean the same thing. um, As we saw the second victim syndrome, I call it a personal crisis management plan because safety planning is a little soft for ER, but personal crisis management plan sounds better. It's the same thing that when you have a crisis, who are those people you are going to call on? Have you talked to them and say, hey, you know, if I call, there might be a time that I need to talk to you. But I don't care if you use a code word. And if you say pineapples, when they pick up the phone, that this is the time that bad things happen because you can't even articulate the other words of that. It was an awful thing. Yeah. Fine. You know, do you need distractions? Do you need mantras? I'm a big believer in mantras that everybody goes through this. Everybody, yeah. You know, um, The words that you tell yourself, you will believe. Choose good mantras and choose good rules. We have lots of rules in medicine. Never let go of the guide wire. That is that there's guide wires that you put into like blood vessels and you don't want to let go of it as you put a catheter over it because if you let go of it, the guide wire and the catheter may all go in together. And then one, you look like an idiot when they read the x-ray. Two, the patient has to go through things. Three, your supervisor will be talking to you because this is an unintended event, averse event. So you never let go of the guide wire. Well, maybe it is you never kill yourself when you're drunk or intoxicated on other substances. You never kill yourself if you haven't had 80 hours of sleep. You never kill yourself unless you talk to somebody else first. Yeah. And when you hit that point, it's like these are the three rules. I love it. We can do that right now.
0: We can, and I I love your reference to the EAP. Um, in a world where, and I try to say this, I try to crowbar it into every podcast um, because I don't know who listens and when. Um, but I believe that mental health provision, care provision, is the only discipline under the all the entire medical umbrella where insurance does not, you know. Co- commercial insurance, Medicaid insurance, state insurance, doesn't matter. Insurance does not cover preventative care. We've got preventative care in every other medical arena except mental health. So there is no you know, pop the hood, check the belts and hoses twice a year, three times a year visit. EAP is one of those ways where you can do that. It's paid for by the employer. You don't go through insurance. It's free. You don't need a diagnosis. And that's one of the the damnable miseries of it is that in order to come see me, for me to bill your insurance, I have to have a diagnosis on you, which means you have to meet criteria, which means you essentially have to be broken enough to receive care. And that's disingenuous to all the things that we're talking about with regard to prevention. You want to prevent bad things from happening, then you better pay up for preventative care. And this is an investment, you know, it's it's yet another, I guess, instance to, to illustrate how our culture... Our societies fail to invest in mental wellness. Um, you know, it's like we can't see it; it must not exist. Um, so, I love the EIP. I love, I love the mantras. Um, those are things that hospitals, uh, corporate institutions can, in, you know, can implement if they get serious about it. And and really, right down to the the individual education programs. I love that idea too because I'm a big fan of starting things early. Um, because by the time you hit residency, chances are really good that your plate's full anyway, and you're not gonna, you know, it's like, here, by the way, go attend this other training. I know you thought you were done with trainings, but <laughs> like, oh, all right, I'll also squeeze this thing in um, while your hair's on fire. Um, getting it, getting it in, in grad school would be great. If we could do it in fourth grade, that'd be even better. But <laughs>
1: yeah. We also did a third thing because it is hard to talk about suicide it's Mm -hmm. like when do you put that in the conversation and when there's so many other things competing for um didactic sessions Mm -hmm. uh stroke sepsis Mm -hmm. uh heart attacks like where do you put suicide and is how much of it is what we do or do we have them go see the psychiatrist like how and we started to think of it about patients and not so much ourselves. Um, so well, You're bulletproof,
0: what, right? I mean, that's, you're, you're, the, you're, the, you're, the, you're the person in the white coat. You're not allowed to get sick.
1: And, and institutions like us to be bulletproof. So mm-hmm. uh, I'll go to that in a minute. So what we wanted to do was create a time for people to be able to recognize it and talk about it. So we developed this National Physician Suicide Awareness Day during um, suicide prevention, uh, month in September. It's two, September
0: 17th. Two years you've been doing that now? Is that right?
1: Yes, this will be the third third one. Mm-hmm. And um, we started in emergency medicine and got the emergency medicine organizations together and started talking to other um, organizations that dealt with training programs, tried to reach out on Twitter and let it go viral. We have a, a logo that you can use free um, to get out there. And we found that Um, professional organizations were supportive, but it's been much harder to talk with institutions. Because when you start talking to the people in the C-suite, the administrators, they don't want, they're worried about the optics on talking about perhaps their physicians would kill themselves. Uh. And so you can put something up in the physician lounge, but we don't want you have something in the local paper. And it was surprising to me in how you overcome that. Um, but as we've grown, it, what we found is it's given an opportunity for it to fit in the curriculum, that we can talk about suicide and physician suicide in particular, and talk about how that experience happened to them. Most people who have been doing this for a while have a story of somebody that they knew who killed themselves. But there's never a, a good opportunity to talk about it on a normal day.
0: That's what happened but, to you. you. You saw a letter from somebody else, and it essentially gave you permission to acknowledge your own experience.
1: I had never seen anything like that.
0: Right. Ever. But and yet and yet it aligned with you because you were going through it.
1: Yes, and even with that, it was very, very, very difficult and it needs practice It needs practice this is goes back to the enduring the acquisition it was very hard to talk about a lot of things one of the hardest things for me was to share the mri of my daughter Mm. i looked at that and i don't understand how anybody can't be horrified and even in my little community of brain tumor parents the questions were like what were her symptoms and that just talking about that, what were her symptoms or the, Oh my God, that's gigantic. I had trouble with not knowing what the reaction was going to be and handling it. So if it was bad with the general population, I certainly don't want to do it with doctors. I don't want to reveal my deficiencies in my professional, Right. Uh, my professional group. The first person I sent it to, I sent by email, um was to Chris. This was actually 17 years later. It was a year after I knew him and I decided if I was going to talk about it, I had to use her MRIs rather than somebody else's just for um, you know, the internet and you have to have the permissions that you should. So it's easiest to have the permissions for my daughter. And I sent that and the time I got a response which to me was going to be like oh my god that is huge Mm. um I I said I wanted to use it and he's like if you're okay with it I'm okay with it like wow that is the most grace that you could have on this and I was overwhelmed with what The response would be, what the questions would be, what the inquisition. And it was amazing. And now that I started to share, other people can share their stories. You see more and more, it's not just me, but other people share their stories. And as we share the stories and get support for this, I think there will be more openness. On the website, if you search MPSA Day, there is uh, on the opening page at the bottom, there's logos from all different groups um there and you can scroll down it's become bigger and bigger and bigger and I will thank Zephyr Wellness. You'll be able to find them. They're the very last one thanks That's to awesome. the alphabet. That's awesome. Thanks. <laughs> right at the bottom is Zephyr Wellness. And That's I really great. appreciate you.
0: that support. Thanks. Hey um I want to be mindful of your time and um you know, and and let you you get about your day or your evening now that it's 10 o'clock your time. But um, I I do have, I can't can't let you go without listing off uh, some of the resources and the websites that you offered. I know you mentioned NPSA, that's National Physician Suicide Awareness, um, nested within the council, I'm going to get it wrong, the Council of uh, Emergency (laughs) Resident (laughs) Directors.
1: Council residency directors
0: yes, and yep. um but what where what are your favorites um tell people where to go how they can reach you if they want to that kind of thing
1: well uh, to reach me um because I have an easily Googleable name yeah, you, you can find my email address uh, my Twitter handle is at l underlying swish um, but uh it's, it's generally very easy to find me. I have uh, my um, personal email out there, middletonswisher at msn.com is available. And uh, I do like connecting with people. For sites, metanoria.org, I think is, is the site that I really like. I have nothing to do with it. I don't have any idea who runs it. Um, you can find it. Um, self-help for suicidal ideation. One of the things that I found, one of the things that I found was that um, I loathed to talk to anybody. And at first I needed a little bibliotherapy. I needed to learn a little bit about it myself. Uh, You'd think as a doctor, you should know these things. And uh, this really laid out some of the self-help things and framed suicide in a different way. That it was um that my pain was outweighing my coping skills. And I really just needed to get some better coping skills. I think that that one that there are there are other self-help sites. That what, that's a very, very good one. How
0: how do you spell it? What is it? Metanoria?
1: I think that's how it's spelled. Do you have shoutouts? What's that? Do you have show notes?
0: Uh, yeah, we'll, no. we'll put something in there. We can put
1: want. it in the show notes.
0: Yeah, if you can find it, because I just did a quick Google, and I might have spelled it wrong. But, um, yeah. Email it to Sorry me.
1: Sorry about for... that. I, I wish I had thought of that before. That's okay. Um, this The American Association of Suicidology yeah. um, has, uh, the last two years, has allowed us to do a Facebook flurry of interviews of different people who have different perspectives um, on uh, physician suicide, those that have had their own ideation, those who have been doing research, Um, those that are leaders of organizations, including a person from the CDC, uh, who talked about some of the problems with the numbers that we talked about here. Um, And if you search through their on their facebook page through the videos on september 17th through the last two years uh, there's a bunch of videos there that are very good
0: you know you really starting your own me too movement is what it is it's a, it's a it, i hate saying the the permission granting but that's that's really what it is like people need to see somebody else do it to give themselves permission to come out uh, with their own stories and acknowledge it so they stop suffering I mean that's really what counseling is anyway that's what validation is it says yeah me too and then they're like oh wow so you know while the hashtag the official hashtag me too movement is something different it did the same thing it says you know there's a bunch of people who are struggling with this thing and then a bunch of them saw that a bunch of other people saw those people and went oh yeah me too well, if you're saying it, then I guess I can say it, and that's basically what you guys are you, you're doing with this. And I hope it catches fire in the physician community. I don't know. I don't see how it can't, uh, with all the efforts that you're you're making. And I I love it. I think it's it's awesome. And obviously, I'm behind it. Um, all right. So the way that I wrap up things in the in the counseling world, in my my end of the the woods, I guess, is I ask you know what people are taking away from a group, from a supervision session, from their from their own session. So rather than ask my podcast guests what's one thing you're taking away, um, I ask you to leave us with something you would like us to take away. So what's one nugget of truth, some saying, uh, an exhortation? What do you want to leave us with?
1: So there's a phrase that I have said. Silence is the prison, and it's what I thought was keeping me free. Those 16 years that I didn't say anything, and I pushed all those emotions down, was a prison because it chained me to being somebody I wasn't um I couldn't reveal everything and I thought I would lose everything I'd lose my license I'd lose my respect for my peers if I said anything and it was exactly the opposite Um, I found that I'm very comfortable with myself I found that I've stronger and deeper connections with other people and I find that talking about this makes a difference silence was never my friend and I did not know it
0: that is profound and powerful and I appreciate you sharing that I have nothing more to say on that because you said it perfectly great job Well, no, thank you for making the time and um, spreading the message. I really appreciate it. I know our listeners will appreciate it. And I look forward to our next phone call. You and I have been exchanging a lot of uh, information and correspondence lately. So um, thanks for that. And thanks for involving yourself with WTTA. And until next time, on behalf of the Noggin Notes team and the Zephyr Wellness family, I wish you all great mental wellness. Thank you, Lois.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it so much.